But I think more and more, we're going to be able to see this cheaper technology that allows people to get a sense of their sleep and any sleep disorders that they may have and potentially smart systems that can then give them feedback to say, you know, if this device is maybe an app that's using AI or something that's studying someone's sleep patterns and then giving them customized recommendations for their sleep based on what it's learning. Welcome to Healthcare on the Horizon. I'm your host, Jeff Ostroff. Healthcare on the Horizon is about where things stand now with the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of specific diseases and how things might change with those in the future. We hope you'll find the information here useful in an educational sense, but also perhaps in a more personal way should you, a family member, or a friend have one of the medical conditions we cover. Please note, the information shared on this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as a substitute for the advice provided by your physician or any other healthcare professional. Hi, everybody. Do you or someone you know have a sleep problem? Millions and millions of people around the globe do. My guest expert, Dr. Phil Gurman, is an expert on treating people with sleep disorders and bringing the latest in sleep science to CEOs and decision makers. To learn about the advances being made in tackling sleep disorders, get some great sleep tips and more. Please hear what Phil has to say on this episode of Healthcare on the Horizon. To learn more about Phil, listen to the episode and check the show notes. And please don't forget to check out my other podcast, Looking Forward, Opportunities for Job, Career, Business, and Investment Seekers. Okay, let's get started. Well, hi, Phil. Welcome to Healthcare on the Horizon. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate you uh, inviting me on. Well, I am really excited to have you on because sleep is a topic that not only fascinates me, but I'm sure fascinates millions of people around the world, including many of our listeners. Part of what's fascinating about it, Phil, is that we're learning so much more over the last several years about sleep, and that's what your focus is. So what a great person to have on Healthcare on the Horizon. If you could just tell us a little bit about your educational background and your work experience and when and why you became interested in sleep disorders. So for me, it all comes down to a class I took in college, which actually happened to be here at Penn, where I now work. I was fall of my senior year, and I had decided to sign up for this class on sleep that sounded interesting. And in the first class, the professor said, we sleep roughly a third of every day, which means in a given month, you'll have spent about 10 days of sleep. In a given year, you'll have slept roughly 120 days. Mm. And if you live to the ripe old age of 90, you'll have spent 30 years of your life asleep. And that just blew me away. I had never really done that math. So then I asked, well, what is sleep for? And he said, well, we don't know a lot about it. So I ended up then going into the field. I pursued graduate training in psychology. I'm a clinical psychologist by training. And I spend my time professionally in the combination of treating people with sleep problems, but also researching sleep problems and how we can try to help people get a better night of sleep. Yeah. When you say that about the hours that people have slept, Phil, you make me think about my brother-in-law, who is going to turn 80 this year. 
and for most of his life, as far as I know, has managed to live off maybe five or six hours of sleep a night. That's pretty remarkable. We may talk about how come some people can get by with just a few hours of sleep. And I know a lot of famous people are said to have been able to have done that, like Edison, I believe. Can you tell us, Phil, just a little bit about some of the more common sleep disorders, including how do they present themselves and approximately who and how many people they affect? You may be just talking about the United States in this case, but we're definitely going to have you talk global too. Absolutely. So the most common sleep disorder is insomnia, which is my particular area of specialization. And insomnia is pretty easy to define. There's really two main pieces to it. One, you're having trouble falling asleep or you're waking up and spending a lot of time awake in the middle of the night. And two, it's having some sort of negative impact on you during the day. People will say they're tired, they're irritable, or trouble concentrating during the day. If you have those two on a regular basis, we would say that you suffer from insomnia, which affects around 10 to 15% of people in the U.S. chronically, meaning this is something they've been struggling with for at least a few months. Rates in other countries are comparable. In some countries, like in China, it's more like 15 to 20%. Wow. In some other countries, it's a little bit lower, but it's around 10 to 20%, depending on which country you're looking at. So that's the most common sleep disorder. The sleep disorder that really is most commonly seen in sleep medicine is what's called sleep apnea, which these days I think a lot of people are familiar with what that is, but the brief version of it, brief description, is the most common form of this is that there's tissue in the back of our airway that relaxes when we sleep. And when you breathe in and out, that tissue vibrates and that can cause snoring. So snoring is often a vibration of this tissue. But for some people, the tissue is large enough that it actually covers over their airway and their sleep. It blocks or what we call obstructs the airway. So they're trying to breathe, but the air is just not getting through. And as a result, the amount of oxygen in the blood starts to drop. Eventually, it triggers the brain to cough or gasp or do something to clear the airway up again. And if we do this a few times in the night, that, that's fine. But people who are doing this over and over again all night, we might diagnose with what's called obstructive sleep apnea. So those two are the most common, probably next most common would be what's called restless leg syndrome, where at night, when people are sitting or lying still, they get the sensation in their legs that they describe often as a tingling, creepy, crawly sensation that gives them this urge that they have to get up and move around to relieve the sensation. But because it has this urge to move around, that makes it hard to fall asleep as a result. So there are other sleep disorders that I'm happy to talk about, but those three are the most common that people are experience. I want to talk a little bit more about global and about demographics. You had mentioned that there are some places like China mm -hmm. where there actually are more sleep problems than there are, say, in the United States or other countries where there may be fewer sleep problems. I'm wondering why in different parts of the world there might be these differences. And along with that, Phil, I'm wondering if there are certain demographics to sleep problems, maybe 
teenagers don't have them as much as older people do or women and versus men. I really don't know the answer. Yeah. And also I'm wondering about lifestyle, what impact that might have. Certainly people who work overnight, night shifts, what they used to call, maybe still call the graveyard shift. That may be another story. Can you comment on that? I know that's a lot, but taking the global and then spinning it out. So starting with the global piece, we have data on the different rates of sleep problems. We don't have a lot of studies on the reasons behind it. But a few things that definitely play a role is one is cultural attitudes towards sleep. When some cultures, including our culture, sometimes sleep is seen as a waste of time. And so people culturally, it's just there's not a priority placed on getting a good night of sleep. Certainly stress levels. So people who live in countries where people are struggling to meet basic needs or having to work multiple jobs and just or living in war torn areas of the world. Anytime you're living in kind of a stressful circumstances, especially anything associated with kind of direct threat of harm, yeah. that's going to throw off sleep. I don't know how anyone could sleep under some of those circumstances, to be honest with you. I don't either, Phil. And I'm thinking about people in Ukraine. Yeah. I can't imagine a lot of them are getting a good night of sleep right now. Yeah. So I think those are some of the global factors. I think in terms of some of the demographic factors, we definitely know that women experience insomnia at about um, 50% higher rates, about three women with sleep problems for every two men. And that's more for insomnia. On the sleep apnea side, that tends to be more common in men. Certainly with age, rates of sleep problems increase as we get older. What is less clear is that just part of the aging process? Or is it the fact that as we get older, we're just more likely to have different health problems beyond different medications that could impact our sleep? So it's been difficult to tease apart how much of it is aging versus the things that go along with aging. Certainly people within the U.S. who live in communities where there might be, so for example, a hot topic these days is what's the impact on living in neighborhoods played by gun violence. And mm. certainly it's going to be hard to sleep if you live in an environment at which there's concerned about safety in the night. How do you let down your guard to be able to sleep at night if you live in an unsafe neighborhood? You mentioned shift work. That's a huge issue. And some communities have higher rates of shift work than others. Again, shift work's another one of those things. I don't think I could ever do the night shift. I could if I had to. Right. But I certainly do not think I would sleep well if I was on the night shift. Yeah. So those are a few factors in terms of specific groups of people who might have higher rates of sleep problems. And then in terms of your last question, in terms of lifestyle, certainly a good night of sleep is just part of a healthy lifestyle. And so I think the same way that we encourage people to make exercise a priority and eating well a priority in the same way, making sleep a priority. Now, we often differentiate that people don't get enough sleep for one of two reasons. One is a problem with sometimes it's called sleep ability, meaning you're trying to get a good night of sleep, but you're just not able to because of insomnia or sleep apnea or just something that's disrupting your sleep. The other is a problem of sleep opportunity, meaning people aren't getting a good night of sleep because they're just not spending enough hours in bed. And so you might have two people who are both getting, let's say, five and a half hours of sleep per night. One of them's in bed eight hours. They're just only getting five and a half. 
versus someone who's getting five and a half because they're only in bed for six. And so those are two different sides of the equation. Very important stuff. Phil, just to come back to what you were saying, I know you said that men may have less insomnia than women, 50% less, okay? Men oftentimes are known to not report problems. Wondering if that could be the issue there. Yeah, it certainly probably is a factor. Yeah, men maybe they have similar sleep problems, but just shrug it off, be more likely to shrug it off and say it's not an issue, even though maybe it is impacting them. So certainly it's likely that is a factor in some of these differences. Okay. Another thing, again, on the demographic side, we have more and more people. I know in the United States, I can't speak for the entire world who are living single. They're living alone. They may not even know they have sleep problems. And so are we really even able to capture these people who may be dangerously living, let's say, with sleep apnea, don't even know it? Absolutely. I always appreciate when people come to see me or in the sleep clinic is when they bring their bed partner with them, if they have one. Sometimes having a bed partner can provide information that we just don't know. So absolutely, when people don't have that bed partner, there are probably some people who are unaware of problems they're having in their sleep because there's no one there to witness them. Exactly. Who knows how many of the people who are living alone have undiagnosed sleep problems, some of which may be deleterious to their health, others of which may be out and out dangerous to their health. Phil, more and more people, as you well know, and as our audience well knows, are now working at home. They're working remotely. Have you yet been able to determine whether or not working remotely, and you could possibly throw in COVID with this or not, is having any effect on people's sleep? It absolutely is. But interestingly, it goes both ways. Mm. There's a group of people who definitely sleep worse. In particular, can be because there's less of a boundary between work life and personal life, especially for some people, the only place they have to set up as an office is a desk in their bedroom. Exactly. So when they go to bed at night, they're looking at all that work sitting over there waiting to be done the next day. So I think that difficulty separating work and personal life can contribute to worse sleep for some people. The flip side of that is people who now, because they're not commuting, they have greater flexibility with their schedule and can spend more time sleeping. So that for some people, that time they would have spent commuting now ends up translating into more opportunity for sleep. And so they're actually getting more sleep as a result. Isn't that interesting? Let's talk about what's happening now in the prevention of sleep problems, diagnosis of sleep problems, and treatment of those problems, Phil. Years ago, I went in for a sleep study. The conclusion wasn't very clear, but I think it was a little bit of restless leg. Where are we now in terms of our ability to prevent sleep problems, to diagnose them and treat them? I would say on the prevention side, we have not made a whole lot of progress, to be honest with you. Mm. Prevention side you know, has definitely been falling behind compared to some of the areas. Where a lot of the advancements have been in the diagnosis and the technology piece for insomnia. It's been really interesting to us in the field to see this explosion of kind of wearable technology that people have that measures their sleep. And so things like 
our activity trackers, our Fitbits and things like that we wear that can give us information about how much sleep we got and the quality of that sleep. Although I will say one of the most common questions I get is how accurate are these devices? Yeah. And the problem is we don't know because companies don't publish studies demonstrating the accuracy of the devices. So there's lots of them out there, but I can't say for sure how accurate they are. But it's just been an interesting in terms of technological developments. On the sleep apnea side, we've seen a few waves of, so in your case, you went into the sleep lab for sleep study. Well, more and more, if the main point of the sleep study is to figure out if someone has sleep apnea, we now have technology to often be able to do that in the home. Wow. And so people are just get mailed equipment. And depending on where you're getting your care, you put the equipment on yourself at night, you wear it overnight, and the next morning you send it back. Now we're moving to the next generation again with this wearable technology where you know, like the Apple Watch, for example, claims that they can measure oxygen saturation in your blood now. And there's other kind of equipment and devices coming out there that are claiming to be able to determine whether or not people have sleep apnea. Again, we don't have a lot of good data on just how accurate all these devices are, but I think we're just going to continue to see very rapid developments in terms of how we measure sleep and how we diagnose sleep disorders. You mentioned new devices. I hear oftentimes, although I don't yet have one, the Aura Ring. Mm -hmm. Is that another one? It is. Yeah, the Aura Ring is kind of different because a lot of the devices are wrist-worn. So the Aura Ring is measuring things like movement skin temperature, that's measuring pulse rate, your sweating response, and it's using that combination of information to try to estimate when you're awake and when you're asleep. And I, in fact, I think that's probably an important point for people to understand is most of these devices are not measuring sleep. They're measuring things like movement, heart rate, pulse, and they're using those pieces of information to try to estimate when you're awake and you're when you're asleep, but they're not measuring sleep and wakefulness directly. Okay, thanks for clarifying that. I really hope you're enjoying this episode so far. If you are, can you please do me a small favor? Let some of your family members, friends, or others in your network know about it and about healthcare on the horizon. If you happen to like this podcast, my interviewing approach, or perhaps even my voice, Please consider checking out some of the many services my business provides. These include podcast hosting, creation and consulting, voiceovers, professional interviewing, production of audio or video promotional profiles to help you sell your business, promote your services, increase your customers or raise funding, and services to help you market to the large and growing seniors population. That's something I've actually written a book about. To learn more about all of this and my other podcast, Looking Forward, Opportunities for Job, Career, Business, and Investment Seekers, please visit www.jeff-ostroff.com. You can also email me at jeff at jeff-ostroff.com. Still talking about today and talking about treatment. A lot of people, I have to tell you this, Phil, are spending millions, if not billions of dollars on sleep medications. That's not new. What is new? Are there new medications? 
over-the-counter stuff beside devices? Are there psychological approaches? You're a psychologist. What is new right now? So the two main types of treatments, or at least for the insomnia side, are medications and a non-medication approach called cognitive behavioral treatment. On the medication side, with one exception, there's not really anything new going on. Most of the medications work in a similar way. Almost everything over-the-counter is some form of melatonin or an antihistamine, diphenhydramine. The one exception to that is there's an interesting kind of new category of sleep medications called orexin antagonists. The first one came out, it must be you know, maybe about five or six years ago, from Merck. And just in the last year, year and a half, two more companies now have got their approval for similar medications. And they're interesting because one of people's complaints about sleeping medications often is they say it makes them feel drugged at night and they don't like that sensation. These medications don't seem to produce that effect. They work in kind of a more subtle way. So they're very interesting medications and I'm curious to see more data come out on them. So that's, I think, the main development on the medication side. On the non-medication side, this treatment, cognitive behavioral treatment, or we've abbreviated CBTI, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, for short. The treatment itself has been around for several decades now. It's a gold standard treatment for insomnia, very effective for a lot of people. Where a lot of the development is in ways to make that treatment more accessible to people. And so there are now different internet based platforms where you can receive the treatment. There are some mobile apps that offer this type of treatment. Prior to the pandemic, some of the work that I was doing was in kind of delivery of treatment over video telehealth, which was fairly new then. Now, after, due to the pandemic, telehealth, we're all doing telehealth these exactly. days. That's not so new now. But it's using different modes of technology to try to increase access to treatment. That's encouraging. One thing that I overlooked asking you, Phil, if we step back for a second before we look into the future, so we're going to go back to the future. Mental health yeah. is a huge problem in the United States. It's gotten much worse since COVID. It's not great in many other parts of the world for various reasons. There is definitely, in some cases, a clear association between mental health issues and sleep. If you could just talk briefly about that, it's a huge issue. Huge, huge issue, absolutely. But we've known for a long time that people who suffer from one or more mental health problems often have trouble sleeping, in particular people who suffer from depression or anxiety disorders. And historically, the thinking was, well, you're just having trouble sleeping because of your depression, because of your anxiety. What we now understand is that the arrow goes in both directions, mm. that when you don't sleep well, that tends to magnify your depression or you tend to feel more depressed. If you already have some anxiety, if you then sleep poorly, it tends to make your anxiety worse. And whatever an individual's kind of particular vulnerabilities are as far as mental health is concerned, sleep amplifies those vulnerabilities, whatever they may be. Now, conversely, we can also suggest that it also suggests that if you can improve people's sleep, that could potentially improve their mental health. That's the focus of a lot of my own research is trying to understand those connections. And there's more and more research showing that if you treat someone's insomnia, it's typically for most people, it's not going to cure their depression, it's not going to cure their anxiety disorder, 
but it can improve it somewhat. So like people may not feel as depressed. They might not feel as anxious if they are sleeping better. Yeah. And that makes perfect sense to me. We should ask you here something I spoke to you about very early on. What I'm hearing is, and it's age dependent, I know, to some extent, when we're talking about getting the right amount of sleep, and we're talking about good quality sleep, not just numbers, right? I'm hearing seven, eight hours, and then I mentioned my brother-in-law, and I think it was Edison and Winston Churchill and all these amazing people. Is there really that much variability, or is it really a bell curve where most of the people are going to be needing seven, eight, and you get those few people who need 12 and the other ones need two? Is that kind of how it works, Phil? Yeah, so there is definitely variability from person to person, how much sleep we need. Yes, seven to eight hours seems to be optimal for the majority of people, but there are people who truly need less sleep. We call those people short sleepers. There are also people who need more sleep, what we call long sleepers. And this seems to be, we think, largely genetically determined. So this is something you're born with. However, we also know there are a lot of people who say, well, I used to get seven, eight hours of sleep, but I've been getting six hours for such a long time, I'm just used to it now. And now that's all that I need. Well, what we've learned is that as far as we can tell, our bodies do not adjust to chronic sleep deprivation. Mm. But what happens is when you're sleep deprived for long periods of time, that just starts to feel normal to you. That becomes your new normal. So as a result, we think that we've adjusted and that we're now getting enough sleep but we're actually chronically impaired and we just don't know it. So yes, there are some people who are short sleepers who need less sleep, but we know from research studies that there are a lot of people who think they're short sleepers who actually are chronically impaired and unaware of it. Wow. And they may not find out until some further point down the line. Exactly. We call this show Healthcare on the Horizon because we are looking into the future. And I'm finding with every particular disorder or disease that we cover on the show, I don't care what it is, there are promising things that are out there, either in research or maybe a few years down the road. What are you seeing, Phil, on the horizon, just talking about through the rest of this decade, in terms of either prevention, diagnosis, or treatment of sleep disorders? So I think the first thing I had that's been changing and foresee continuing to change is just our cultural attitudes towards sleep. When I first started pursuing this field and I told people I'm studying sleep, and this is back in the mid-90s, people would look at me and say, what do you mean you're studying sleep? Are you interpreting people's dreams? I said, no. Sleep just wasn't on people's radar screens back then. So it's been really rewarding to see how culturally we seem to be taking sleep much more seriously than we used to. I foresee that continuing into the future. So I'm optimistic that as a society and globally, we're going to continue to make sleep more of a priority. I think other things into the future, I think building on the success of the wearable technology, but starting to have kind of more and more devices that, because not everyone's going to be able to get into a sleep clinic or to get a detailed assessment. But I think more and more, we're going to be able to see this cheaper technology that allows people to get a sense of their sleep and any sleep disorders that they may have and 
potentially smart systems that can then give them feedback to say, you know, if this device is maybe an app that's using AI or something that's studying someone's sleep patterns and then giving them customized recommendations for their sleep based on what it's learning. I know people are starting to work on that now. And so I think we'll begin to see that in the next five to 10 years. So those are at least a couple of things that I think we can certainly look forward to in the upcoming horizon. Yes, and I'm hearing more and more people, experts talking about more customization in medicine, and that certainly is needed when it comes to sleep issues. Yeah. Phil, one of the things that we like our guest experts to do on Healthcare on the Horizon is share a few tips Mm -hmm. with our listeners that would help them improve their sleep in this case, or maybe help them better deal with a sleep challenge they have right now that might not necessarily require them to come in and see somebody like Phil. Yeah. What would be a couple or so tips you would share with people? So there's two things that I always say that lowest hanging fruit. One is regularity. Our body likes routines and rhythms. Trying to keep a consistent bedtime, trying to keep a consistent wake-up time. I don't mean it doesn't have to be like the exact same time. Trying to avoid really large swings in your schedule from night to night. That just keeping a more consistent schedule can often go a long way. That's one. The second has to do with this idea of, this may sound odd, but what does your body think is supposed to happen in bed? What I mean by that is for a lot of people, yes, they sleep in bed, but they also spend a lot of time lying awake in bed, tossing and turning, or they're in bed watching TV or using their phones. Or for some people, their bed is basically like a place to hang out. But as a result, there's no connection for their body between the bed and sleep. But fortunately, there are some simple things people can do to reestablish that connection between being in bed and being asleep. One, don't go to bed unless you're sleepy. So if you don't feel like you're going to be able to sleep, don't get into bed yet. And two, and probably more importantly, if you can't sleep, get up. Meaning you don't want to just lie in bed, tossing and turning for long periods of time. I always say that's just adding fuel to the fire and it just makes it worse. So when you can't sleep, get up, go do something relaxing until you feel sleepy again, and then return to bed. So those are my off of my basic tips that, that I want everybody to learn. Well, they're very good tips and they can apply to just about everybody. I find it very difficult to go to bed at the same time, get up at the same time, but I've really been working hard on that again for the 50th time, probably in the last two weeks, and it's working for me and it helps my blood sugars. I've got a blood sugar challenge. So it helps my blood sugars to be more consistent, particularly to go to bed earlier and get up earlier. That's just something I'll put out there. Sometimes I find, and you may have patients or people that you know who report this too, doesn't happen very often, but I might get up at four or five o'clock in the morning when I'm really setting my alarm for 6.30 or seven. And I'm thinking, geez, I feel okay. I don't know why I got up at five o'clock or four o'clock. I feel fine and I got a million things I could be doing right now. I think I'll just get up and do that work. And then I'll be thinking about it. And I would say half the time I say, no, this is not right. Four hours of sleep, five hours, that's not enough. I got to go back. And typically I will be able to fall back, maybe not right away. What's the advice 
for people under those circumstances if they wake up an hour or two earlier. I'm not talking about somebody who goes to bed at 11 wakes up at 1. I'm talking about somebody who goes to bed at 11 and wakes up at 5 when they're supposed to wake up at 6.30, let's say. A lot of it is starting to just listen to your body. If you just feel like your body is saying, you know what, I'm ready to go. I feel good. Maybe for whatever reason, the quality of sleep that night was just better than average. And like you said, especially if it's approaching when the alarm clock's going to go off anyway, it may make sense to just get up. I certainly hear from some people who say they make themselves go back to bed, but when their alarm goes off, then now they actually feel worse instead of it if they had just gotten up earlier. Yeah. But if you wake up early and you feel like, you know what, I just feel like my body needs more. Well, listen to your body, give yourself maybe 15 or 20 minutes to get back to sleep. If it's not happening, then okay, then maybe go ahead and get up. But just, I often encourage people to study their own body in terms of what works well for you. And yeah, I think a lot of times you're going to listen to your body can guide you whether you should just get up at that point or try to get some more sleep. Yeah, I guess my thinking when I do get up is this is great, but something tells me I'm going to pay a price for this later on. (laughs) I don't know. Something else I'd like you to comment on mattresses, Mm -hmm. importance of mattresses. Is that overrated or do you really need to have this super expensive mattress or there's all kinds of stores and online shops and whatever for mattresses? The mattress companies will make all kinds of claims. You're going to sleep better on our bed and everything. But so much of it just comes down to personal preference. A number of years ago, I really wondered what like the Tempur-Pedic beds were like because some people swear by those. And I happened to be traveling and the hotel I stayed in had Tempur-Pedic beds. I was like, wow. this is great because I didn't have to like buy one to check it out. And I didn't like it at all. <laughs> and so for me, that was not a good option. But for other people, it is. So I think it's a matter of just what do you find comfortable? So you don't necessarily have to buy some really expensive high-end bed. But if your mattress is 20 years old and it's lumpy and it's not providing any support, it might be time to see if you can invest in a new one. But personal preference probably matters more than anything else. Okay, thanks. Before I ask you to tell everybody more about Optimal Sleep Consulting, I just wanted to throw in a comment. There is a lot of research going on about sleep, and yet there just seems to be so much more that we need to know about it. And beyond that, something you alluded to, there needs to be, and maybe there has been, but it's not been strong enough, very ongoing, powerful public education programs, public health programs that will continue to pound into people's brains how important sleep is. Because as you said, for a long time, people really didn't take it seriously. And in fact, it was just the opposite. To be macho was to say, I only needed three hours of sleep. Phil, I'd love for you to share with our listeners a little bit more about Optimal Sleep Consulting. You recently launched that sleep consultation service. If you could tell us about the services that you offer there and to whom you offer them. Yeah. And the rationale for kind of this new initiative that we have, you really hit the nail on the head in terms of public awareness, which is that we're always trying to figure out how do we educate people about sleep and the importance of making sleep a priority. We had the thought that one of the routes that maybe we could go about doing this is to work with employers and to say, well, can we educate people in leadership 
of different organizations, businesses, and corporations about the importance of sleep. I think we could achieve a few goals. First of all, the people who are making like the really big decisions, we want to make sure those people are well rested. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So that's one goal behind this. Two, those are the people who are setting workplace policies that could have downstream effects on the sleep of their employees. We can come back to the shift work here. Shift work's not going away anytime soon, but there are some ways to do shift work that are healthier than others. Can we provide this information to the leadership so that they can incorporate that information in the workplace as a whole? So what we're starting to do is to work with organizations to come and speak to leaders, to executives, to provide them with the latest in sleep science, to really help them understand the importance and value of sleep and things that they can do on both a personal and organizational level to improve their own sleep and improve the sleep of their employees as well. Workplace wellness is such a major topic these days, and I think sleep's a very critical but often overlooked component of that. Well, I would just add to that that the first organization type that I hope you work with are airlines. Because <laughs> I want my pilot to not be asleep at the wheel, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and I do hope that the organizations that you work with, be they for-profit, non-profit, that it does flow downstream to the employees and not just stay at the top. We need everybody to be sleeping better. Phil, this has been wonderful. Where should our listeners go to find out more about you, about Optimal Sleep Consulting? Anything else you'd like them to know about related to sleep? Sure. So I think if they'd like to get some more information, we do have a website for Optimal Sleep Consulting that they can look up. People are on LinkedIn. They can also find me there as well or just at our website here for the University of Pennsylvania. And I'd be happy to talk more with people about sleep how they can take sleep science to their organization. And I think we do take our sleep for granted a lot of the times until you know we're unable to get it. There's a lot of aspects of our health that we don't necessarily have a lot of control over. But sleep is something that oftentimes we can take even some simple steps to begin to sleep better. I completely agree. And please don't be shy. Give us that website address. We're all waiting. OptimalSleepConsulting.com Okay, OptimalSleepConsulting.com, people. Phil, this has been wonderful. You shared some very important information with everybody, gave some great tips. Thank you so much for being our guest on Healthcare on the Horizon. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Healthcare on the Horizon. I hope you've enjoyed it and will benefit from it. And if you did like it, Please share this episode with anyone you know who you think might also find it of value. And if you have any comments or questions about Healthcare on the Horizon, or any suggestions for future topics or guest experts, you can reach me at the website www.jeff-ostroff.com or through my email address jeff at jeff-ostroff.com. Thanks.